Welcome back then, Fast Ship Performance. I'm Tim Davies, and today we're going to talk about why pilots fly to set heights and speeds, and that's something that we call parameters. That music, some people don't like that. I'm like, whatever. It's, that's your opinion. You don't like it. You don't have to listen to it. Just pause it for that bit. But um, we're going to talk about opinions in a minute because we are having an issue at the moment with something that's happened in the UK and it's a verdict for the Shoreham air crash that happened back in 2015 with a pilot called Andy Hill. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but actually I've got a bit of a script here because I don't want to miss things out. Um, mainly we're going to talk about pilot parameters, i.e. why pilots fly to set heights and set speeds, and by doing that they achieve an end result. So whilst we talk about this little narrative over the next hopefully 30 minutes, it might go on longer, you know how I roll, um, we're going to try and bring some of those things in about how you can actually, in your personal life, benefit significantly by having some boundaries and a bit of a direction, a left or right of arc, if you will. So we're going to talk about four things really in this, uh, as I said, and it's very, very divisive this. So before I start talking about Shoreham, I am going to say that I have no legal training. You guys know this. Um, I have spoken to a lawyer about this, but she didn't know anything about the case, but she knows about criminal justice law in the United Kingdom. I've also talked to a police officer. The police officer does know something about this case and did know something about the jury and stuff. And it's nothing too topical, but I might bring that in. Um, I was a pilot for 20 years. I have been, I've done the flying supervisors course. I have been responsible for the supervision of flying displays, but that was about 10 years ago. So things have changed now, probably. Uh, that was on Hawk. Um, I have, uh, what else? Yes, I've been, in, I've been the, uh, the subject matter expert which is one of three guys chosen to investigate the uh, an accident. I prefer calling it incident. So it was a service inquiry into a Red Arrows crash. So Royal Air Force Aerobatics team crash involving a pilot called Flight Lieutenant John Eggin, who's a friend of mine, back on the 20th of August, 2011 in Bournemouth. That has read across to this incident here. So I did that for about eight months. Uh, and so the report's online for that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to you initially about an American pilot who didn't accept the parameters he was at wrong he accepted the parameters he was at and uh, it led to the loss of an airplane we'll talk about that i'll play with tape now and then we'll talk a little bit about andy hill uh his incident at shoreham what's come out of the press what that kind of means really in kind of uk legal jargon i'm going to keep it on the low down low kind of not going to go a level on this guys but i'm going to try and highlight why a lot of people especially from the flying community are arguing amongst themselves about this actually quite respectfully which is a good thing to see this side of the Atlantic. If you start arguing about these things on the other side of the Atlantic, sometimes, um, yeah, lots of information, lots of names are thrown around, unfortunately. That, that doesn't help anyone. But over here, we're being quite good about it, and rightly so, because a lot of uh, people lost their lives in this, and there's still families suffering, and they will suffer forever, as will Andy Hill, the pilot, obviously, who was involved in this, this whole tragedy. I want to talk about that. Um, I also want to talk about the defense of cognitive impairment, which is a very interesting defense. And again, I'm going to come back to the previous thing I just talked about, which was the service inquiry into the Red Arrows back in 2011 that I did the investigation in with another two guys. And then we're going to go on to and end with the parameters in our own existence outside of a military construct. I talk a lot about these kind of things to businesses. Uh, in fact, I'm talking this week, in fact, up north, up in Hull, I think it is, uh, in, or I think it's, I can't remember, it's midweek anyway, and I'm talking to a school the following day about similar sort of things about how you can square your life away by just having some predefined parameters that as long as you adhere to those, you're not going to go far off the rails. That makes a lot of sense to everyone. We're going to talk about it at the end. Okay, let's, 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 let's roll. Also, guys, um, I'm not an expert in this. 
factually correct statement at all. I just flew jets for 20 years and people have been asking me on fast jet performance if I can sort of lend a bit of, um, a bit of information to this from my point of view and of course I can do that. I'm not saying what I say here is right, I'm saying that it's an opinion which means it's subjective not objective. That means that it's based on all the information that I have and I've read a lot by the way but I haven't read everything and I have spoken to some professionals but I haven't spoken to the jury and I haven't spoken to the judge. You get what I mean? Also there's no notes on this case and there never will be. Nothing's going to come out of it unless you were in the, the stands at the old Bailey over the last what four months listening to this stuff and even if you were you didn't have the academic or the, the, the training in law that the people had um, who were conducting this case. You weren't the jury either nor was I. Factually correct statement again. What I'm doing here is just breaking out some bits left and right of arc and saying I think this is why people are a little bit annoyed. And you know me right I'm the first to fall on my sword. Personally I don't know Andy Hill I've never met the guy. I'm not even familiar with that whole community of flying hunters and strike masters. I know guys that do. I'm aware of a few people that do, and the nice, the nice guys, don't get me wrong, um, old school, of course they are, irrespective of what that might mean to anyone. The professional throughout is how I've always found it. However, other people there, if you look at the press, will be heavily critical of Andy Hill and his performance. Um, very experienced guy. I don't need to go into his history. You can find that online here. Very, very extensive. Um, of not only Royal Air Force instruction, but also British Airways captain. And then he obviously he's flown these jets for a long time. He's had his own little light airplane. And, and he should be dead, let's, let's say. So he's one of these rare people that's actually signed for a takeoff, whatever, and he hasn't signed for a landing, and he hasn't ejected. He's not going to get a tie because he's ripped out the jet. So, um, yeah, pretty horrific all around, really. So let's have a chat about this, shall we? Again, we're going to cover now, initially, just the parameters in aviation and why they're so important. I'm going to play you a tape, and what I'm going to do now is look over to this monitor. I've got to play you a tape of a, um, a, a crash and injection of a Thunderbirds aircraft from the United States Air Force, flown by a guy called Cra um, Captain Chris Strickland, who was 31 at the time. This happened back in 2004. I spoke to Chris Strickland about this because when I was writing my first book on decision making, which still isn't out yet and probably won't be because there's a middle section I need to re-edit and it was pretty poor. I said, Chris, can we have a chat about this for the book? And he said no. And uh, fair enough, you know, the guy never flew again after this. All right? This is highly embarrassing for him and the team. Uh, so it's to do with hitting a, a gate height at the top that he thought he'd made, but he made calculation errors um, before, unfortunately, and that led to him being well outside of the parameters that he needed to be. And he didn't have any kind of plan B, really, because when he's in that moment of I'm at the top of my loop or my split S as it was, check me out, Tim, was a happy crack on. He'd never done the pre-work on what pressure setting am I supposed to be flying on everything else. So he's gone outside of a parameter and it's ended up in tragedy for this airplane. So I'm going to play it now and I'm going to comment on it whilst you look at the tape. So I'm looking away and you can't even tell that. Right, second 25, let's roll VT. Here what we see then initially is an aircraft getting airborne. This is an F-16 then from the Thunderbirds, as I said, back in 2005, straight into a climb. He's going to go up into the vertical pretty much. You go inside the cockpit now. This is Chris then looking pretty suave. One or two guys actually performing this. Look at him roll now. There's the roll. Um, he's, he's well out of parameters. He's in a bad place now and he starts to realise it on the way down here. You'll start seeing the aircraft. Look at the, that's it, the contrails coming off there. All the vortices. He reaches, look at left hand, left hand moves for the ejection handle, back out to the throttle, back on the ejection handle, he's gone. That was 0.8 of a second then before impact of the airplane. He was about 140 feet when he left it. The blast of the jet hitting the ground probably inflated his chute and he was survived. What you see bouncing down the runway there is the engine tends to survive. That might kind of fuel some conspiracy theories about the Pentagon. Stop, stop, stop. That is out. Right. What I'm saying there is he's flying outside of parameters and that's the result of it. Back in the room, people. Look at my pretty face and the awesome beard. So the result of being outside of parameters in aviation is catastrophic. 
all right which is why we place so much importance on those parameters and normally those parameters are things like fuel and speed and height maybe power settings all these things are there and they guide a pilot uh in whatever they're flying whether it's heavies like my brother flies uh, out in dubai all the way back here to i'm not flying at the moment but some of my boys at valley still flying the jets whatever it might be or t6 they've all got parameters they need to be at we're going to talk a little bit more about that at the end about why parameters are so important when you're in certain areas of flying and how being off parameter will roll into uh, quite a bad place and then we're going to then bring it into what that means for our own everyday lives in the civilian arena most of us now operate in aka to me yeah i operate in that as well so i'm a civilian now or a veteran, however you want to call it, I don't know. So going back to Chris, Strick, Strickland, Chris Strickland's incident then, according to the Accident Investigation Board pilot, the 31-year-old the Chris Strickland misinterpreted the altitude required to complete the split S manoeuvre. He made his calculation based on the incorrect mean sea level altitude of the airfield and climbed to about 1,600 feet as opposed to 2,500 feet. Why is that relevant? I know someone else that did that. That guy's called Andy Hill. Yes. This guy is obviously thinking he's at the correct parameters, but he's had calculations in the past and what was, that are incorrect. And what we're saying is um, that calculation he made on the ground has manifested itself in the air and he's flown himself into the ground. What we'll see now in the comments is people going, oh yeah, he thought he was in the right place, couldn't care less, irrespective of that, his parameters are incorrect uh, and he's lucky not to be killed. Now, when Andy Hill came over the top of his bent loop at Shoreham, the parameters that were facing him on the altimeter were incorrect and he could look at that as opposed to Chris Strickland looking at it and going that's about right because he'd done the calculations incorrectly when Andy Hill looked at his altimeter yes not they will he ever know whether he did because of the the uh, cognitive impairment issue he looked at it or he didn't look at it but either way it was it was out from what it should have been the maneuver was continued and obviously fatalities resulted in that so that was back on 22nd of August 2015 you might remember it then it was in uh, is that Shoreham it landed on a road a lot of people just driving on the road. Uh, the hunter that Andy Hill was flying landed on the cars and killed a lot of them. Young people as well. It was awful. Real tragedy. So it's gone through the old Bailey. The court case has run for about four months, I think it is. The results come out and it's a not guilty verdict on the account that was decided by jury of gross negligence um, manslaughter. It says gross negligence manslaughter is what it was. Or manslaughter by gross negligence is another way of looking at it. And there's different grades of manslaughter but this one that was going to be brought against him was that one manslaughter by gross negligence now it's actually quite a difficult one to prove and one of the police officers actually said to the family uh, we were always told or the family said we were always told by the police that to prove guilty due to gross negligence um, the bar was set very high and that's an interesting phrase the bar was set very high we're going to come into that later on in this in this narrative uh, because it is actually a little bit difficult to prove now I haven't got an agenda in this, by the way. Uh, I've spoken to people that are massive fans of Andy Hill. I've spoken to people that don't like him at all. Couldn't care less. Genuinely couldn't care less. What I'm very interested in is the cognitive impairment decision and the ramifications of that for aviation in general in the future. And that's what we're going to talk about when we look at this particular segment before we come back to parameters again. So what does guilty, not guilty actually mean then? Not guilty on or not proven, not proven is a Scottish verdict, I believe, in civil law. These verdicts mean that there was not enough evidence to prove the case beyond reasonable doubt. Remember those two words, reasonable doubt. Although other special reasons for not finding the accused guilty. Both verdicts mean the accused will be free to leave the court and cannot be tried again for the same offence. Now, there can be a civil prosecution. There's a coroner's court, I believe, that goes on as well. Yada, yada, all that kind of stuff out in the future, whatever. But in a criminal court in the United Kingdom, Andy Hill cannot be um, tried for this again. 
there is something called double jeopardy, isn't there? But this doesn't apply in this case, I don't think. Uh, so whatever, it doesn't matter. Either way, he's not going to be tried for this again. So Hill was charged with manslaughter by gross negligence, and he was acquitted of that. Um, the judge, that was by the jury that acquitted him. The judge actually acquitted him of the charge of recklessly endangering the safety of an aircraft. So the jury never did that. That was the judge that did that. So let's not say the jury acquitted him of that. That was not true. The judge did. Um, and I think I posted somewhere on Facebook before that, and this is still true, I like to think that I would have gone into the court and said, I got that wrong and I'm very, very sorry. And I didn't want to infer wrong, imply by that, for people to infer from what I'd said was that Andy Hill hadn't apologised. That was incorrect. Um, if you had thought that, and that was not what I was implying, he has apologised. He did apologise again. Outside the court, he stood up and he said, he read out the names of the 11 men who died uh, and he said, I'm truly sorry for the, part, for the part I played in their deaths. I think the families were quite upset that in court he didn't say that. That's not what court's for. You don't go to court and stand up and apologise. But what I was saying is, before I fully understood the verdict of cognitive or the cognitive impairment uh, defence, I uh, before I'd read a lot more about it, I said, look, I like to put my hand up and go, sorry guys, completely got that wrong. And I think a lot of pilots understand where I'm coming from with that. Um, however, when we start getting into cognitive impairment, you can understand now why he was not able to say that very important and that's because and we're going to talk about opinions now before I come on to a little bit more about Andy Hill but opinions opinions in the flying community and I speak to a lot of people the funny thing about fast ship performance actually which I really like we're very well behaved on there I've only banned one person I think in the last year and he was a friend of mine um, and hopefully in the future you know we can sort that out and stuff but I couldn't have the vitriol that was being put on the site um, that will go into the young minds of people that come on the site and, and read what I and other people write. But people are very, very responsible and understanding of how the words they can use on the site can inflame other people whose education at that time may not be as extensive of them. Someone said recently, a guy called Ben, I said I'll make you a podcast, um, that my post was very Daily Mail. There's a fine balance when you produce content. I've got to get you to read it. Uh, I don't try to make it as sensationalist as I possibly can. But in this case, I think I'd written something in there that offended Ben a little bit. Um, it wasn't supposed to be Daily Mail at all. It's supposed to be factually um, correct of what I was saying. And I'm not going to be sensationalist about the deaths of 11 people. That's absolutely ridiculous. But I think in his mind, it was probably like a bit of a dig. I get it. Dig, Ben, fine. I'll defend myself. I'll do a podcast, mate. No worries. Uh, and what Ben was doing there was really helping the the conversation move along, wasn't stagnating, wasn't throwing spears, wasn't getting defensive, okay? And I really like that. And there are some ignorant comments on there. And that's fine because it's up for the rest of us to actually educate those people who are being a little bit ignorant. And what is ignorance? It's a lack of understanding, isn't it? It means you're just not educated in that realm. You haven't got that education. A lot of that, I'm not going to spear off into whether citizenship should have been revoked for um, uh, Ms. Begum uh, out in Syria or anything like that. But there's a level of understanding that a lot of people don't have when it comes to international law in that case. So coming back into the room, then, as I said, there are people who are very young, like in their teens on Fast Jet Performance on Facebook. And there are people who are in their 80s um, on Fast Jet Performance as well. And that they meet in the middle. There are some people who have no understanding of aviation. That's brilliant because that's not what I'm about, really, aviation. I'm more about performance in the workplace and performance in the home and about looking after ourselves. And there are test pilots out there as well, exceptionally experienced guys and girls who are feeding back into the conversation. That's why I say, be respectful. You don't even know who you're talking to on there. Sometimes I see comments come up 
from a name I recognise going to another name I recognise and I think I'm not going to step in but you do not understand what you just said and who you just said it to and if you did understand that you would never have said it so that's what I'm talking about be respectful on that now the problem with opinions of course everyone has an opinion and everyone says you must hear my opinion I'm more than happy to listen to your opinion but I'd like that opinion to be based in I'd like to think you've gone away and done some research in order to have that opinion not just read the Daily Mail watch the BBC News and giving your opinion on the site without any context now as I said none of us are in court I get that I haven't flown a hunter ever I don't particularly want to by the way but I haven't um, I'm kind of well read on, on the hunter and the performance characteristics of the airplane and not just for this but in the past as well uh, I've read a few bits about that, um, about flap and, and using flap and, in, in aerobatic manoeuvres and all the roll rates and things like this. And I understand a little bit more about that than maybe. Uh, but I haven't read anything specific for this necessarily. Uh, so I, I like to think I come to this with a bit of information, as I said, and a bit of knowledge. And uh, my opinion is just my opinion, but hopefully my opinion is a little bit informed. And people sometimes tell me my opinion is not informed. And I have to go back to them and say, no, it is. And this is how it's informed. And I'd like you to do that if you're commenting on this video as well. Is when you comment with an opinion like, I think we should hang the guilty bastard. Just tell me why you think that. Like, what's that based in? Yeah, just in the comments below. What are you basing that in? Is that some previous kind of qualification you might have in the air display arena or something like that? Whack it down in the comments because it does. Uh, face, um, YouTube is a very difficult place for, for comments, obviously, for moderation. But it might help stimulate that debate. So what are we saying? So that's why I think it's quite divisive because a lot of pilots that have um, spoken to me about this have said a multitude of things. I, um, we're, we're, we're leaping a little bit ahead of ourselves, really, but um, it comes down to the defense of cognitive impairment, and we're going to talk about exactly what that means. A lot of pilots feel that that is not a true defense. Now, uh, when Andy Hill was found next to the wreckage, ripped out of the airplane, um, partial ejection, that kind of thing, not, I don't think it was initiated by him. I think it was initiated by the, the demise of the aircraft, from what I can gather. Um, he was put into induced coma for about a month. Now, one of the things that happens post that coma is there is memory loss. We all know that. He's saying, I don't remember anything about the uh, event at all, and that's actually probably very true. Because you can't have a defense. You can't say uh, something like, well, I had a glare in my eyes, but I don't remember anything about it. Cognitive impairment uh, and memory loss is what he's in effect saying, is that he doesn't remember anything about the event whatsoever. They can't comment on it. It's a, I hate to say it's a clever defence. I hate to say that. In this particular thing, it is quite a clever defence. I spoke to a police officer about this, and she was saying that lawyers would advise their client, in this case Andy Hill, to not have gone in with that defence if he could have possibly helped it. It's like the worst defence you can go in with. It's a clever one in this regard, but really in, real, in reality, because you can't defend yourself when you say, I don't remember anything. You could, there's no defense now you just say i don't remember anything and it basically is up to the prosecution now to prove it's a difficult one isn't it we're going to talk about why cognitive impairment it was a it was a real very real thing possibly in this this case i'm going to talk about i'm going to use another um, service inquiry to talk about that as well we're going to go down to that in a minute um a lot of pilots think that you're it comes down to where you're cognitively impaired as well was he cognitively cognitively impaired okay what does that mean for a start cognitive cognitive impairment it means your brain is not functioning at the level that you would expect it to be functioning at the time for the event that you're you're doing um when you're asleep you're cognitively impaired because you're asleep you, you know you're not conscious of what you're doing uh, when you're under high g for example um, there's a lack of blood in the brain because you're forcing it out and the blood carries oxygen therefore the oxygen in the brain brain is less therefore your brain by definition is operating at a lower level of oxygen therefore it is cognitively impaired um, if you have alcohol in your system, a lack of sleep, um, poor diet, uh, smoking fumes in the cockpit, 
you know, all these things. Maybe you're blinded by the sun and not able to make the decisions that you were supposed to make at the time. This is all lending itself into cognitive impairment. So now it comes down to the prosecution to say um, this guy was not cognitively impaired and here we can prove this. And that's a real difficult thing to do. Irrespective of that, we're going to get into the case a bit more. What Andy Hill was saying is that he's got no memory of what happened on the 22nd of August 2015. Uh, believes he must have been cognitively impaired or disorientated to have made such a catastrophic, catastrophic mistake to crash the 1950s Hawker Hunter um, into the busy dual carriageway. Now, there's a lot of people who have flown with Andy Hill in the past. And they, they all say he's a very dedicated pilot, um, as Chris Strickland was, of course, in the Thunderbirds there. My, my point I'm trying to get across to you is you can have the greatest pilots in the world ever and just one small error can end up like this. So Andy Hill could have been the greatest person ever in the whole world. In the whole world ever, could have been the greatest pilot ever to fly. One mistake leads to the death of 11 people. That mistake could have been a multitude of things. It could have been. Now, he doesn't remember, so I can speculate here. But I'm not speculating at all, so that's the wrong word. I'll give my opinion of what some mistakes might be outside of Andy Hill's cockpit. I couldn't care less about the flying that he was doing at the time. But what might it be, say, with one of my students at Valley, what mistake might they have made? Um, failure to check speed, failure to check height, failure to check their fuel. Failure to strain under G, um, uh, do the anti-G straining manoeuvre that they've been taught. Failure to do that, which would reduce the amount of blood. By not doing it, reduce the amount of blood in the brain, therefore lack of oxygen in the brain, therefore they're not, they are cognitively impaired. They're cognitively impaired by the moment they put their helmet on and get into the airplane, the students normally. Um, and I am as well. If I, if I was to go back flying now, I haven't flown for a year, I'd be impaired. I'd be like, this is ridiculous. This is hard. And you've got to be doing it. So um, failure to check any of the systems, failure to set frequencies properly, whatever it might be. Uh, and then being confused by it afterwards, this is all leads to cognitive impairment. Lack of oxygen, as I said, smoking fumes, all that kind of stuff, uh, it does as well. Um, so those are those things. Now, interestingly, when, a mil when the military have what's called a service inquiry, there's about five things they look at. That is, they give a cause for the uh, what they feel the incident was. They look at the contributing factors. They look at aggravating factors. They look at other factors. It is called that. And they look at, is it... Um, some observations at the very end it's about five things when you look at the CAA report for Andy Hill's incident uh, you I think you just get two you get the uh, I think you get causal factors and you get something else as well I can't remember what it is it's two causal and I think it might be something like other factors or something it's just two things that it comes out of we're going to cover some of those right now anyway so it's quite a lengthy report, the CA's report, but there are some factors in it that I just want to get across to you, really, because the whole premise of this event was that Andy Hill, when he went into the manoeuvre, which was a uh, what's called a bent loop, it's not really something to do with military flying. You start the loop, you sort of rotate a little bit at the top, and you come out on a different line that you started off on. You always have a line you're flying on, so you've gone in, say, on um, on the airfield, you pulled up and at the top, or as you're coming up, you kind of roll a little bit, come over the top. I'll try and play his film here if I manage to put it into the video, but I'm quite busy at the moment. And then you line yourself up with another feature, and then you come down, which in this case, I guess, was the road. You fly down that feature, and then you go into your next manoeuvre. That's why you bend the loop. Um, court clovers, anything else like that, I suppose, is what military terms would be, or military personnel would be more in, inclined to, to use. So the investigation from the CAA into Andy Hill's incident said this is only some of them about causal factors this is the interesting one it says the aircraft did not achieve sufficient height at the apex of the accident maneuver to complete it before impacting the ground because the combination of a low entry speed and low engine thrust in the upward half of the maneuver was insufficient now 
You're supposed to have a five and a foot in this. You're supposed to be at five and a foot before you start the manoeuvres. That's what the report says. I've actually read somewhere else that actually you can start the manoeuvre from 100 feet if you finish it by 500 feet. So I'm, I'm, I haven't really delved into it. I think that I'm not saying that's not a factor. I think he was at 185 feet on his running here. The, the key out of all this for me is the energy he had in the loop because it's like anything, isn't it? If you have a ball and you toss the ball really lightly to like your dog, it just goes maybe a couple of meters. And if you run up and you throw the ball, you're giving that ball a lot more energy and the ball's gonna go much further, okay? We all know how that energy works. Same thing for airplanes, okay? If I have, if I come in at 500 knots and I put my jet on his tail, and we do this at low level when we lose an engine at 420 knots, which is about 500 miles an hour, engine failure, written about it before, bang, leave the throttle alone, clear above, either there's no one above me, no paragliders, whatever, and then slowly bring the nose of the aircraft up to about 30 degrees, get out from the low level environment, and you're gonna get about seven, 8,000 feet in the hawk, and you're gonna have about three or four minutes to restart that engine before you have to get out and eject, because it just glides. Right, that's about energy. The problem that we get sometimes in a hawk when students let the energy bleed off, if they come below 400 knots, especially for a tornado pilot, I'm like, sort your energy out, because what you're doing is losing energy. So if you're rolling around at 390 knots, 380, 370 knots in a hawk at low level, and you hit a bird, well, the kinetic energy that you have now and the potential that's stored in the airplane, of course, you have much less of. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to get a whole trade going on and you're not going to get as high with 360 knots as you would do with 420. Makes sense. In this realm that Andy Hill was in, he came in for the run-in. I think it was at 310 knots. He self-declared that he should have been at 350. This is pre-display for that particular maneuver. So now, of course, he's starting off with, um, with less energy. Less energy, less height. Makes sense. I'm assuming everyone's understood that. It's about an energy transfer, isn't it? Okay. So, uh, and then there was something about, this. so you've got an apex at the top, guys. So I haven't got an airplane here. And I don't need an airplane here because we can, we can use a hand. But the apex is the bit at the top where you're upside down here, okay? That's your apex at the top of your loop. Uh, so it starts off like this, does a loop, up this bit here, checks heights, looks, makes everything's around, and then starts committing down the other side. My hand breaks. Um, but if you don't get that height at the top, you stop there, you go, oh, I haven't got the height to complete a maneuver, then you can fly what's called an escape maneuver. And what it's saying here is um, an escape maneuver was not carried out despite the aircraft not achieving the required minimum apex height. And then there were some contributory factors. That's right, so causal factors, contributory factors, factors that contributed also with this. So the pilot either did not perceive that escape maneuver was necessary or did not realize that one was possible at the speed achieved at the apex of the maneuver. He said something about um, those speeds that was down here, actually. We'll get on to that in a second. There we go. The pilot had not received formal training to escape from the accident maneuver in a hunter and not over his competence uh, to do so assessed. I don't know who would assess that really. Um, normally the pilot themselves, I guess, would go and practice that one. Oh, there we go. The pilot had not practiced the technique for escaping from the accident maneuver in a hunter and did not know the minimum speed from which an escape maneuver could be carried out successfully. Interesting one, because if you are too slow and you try to roll that aircraft, there's every chance you could depart it or it's going to roll so slowly, the nose is just going to continue to drop through the sky. And I think at the top of the apex, he was about 105 knots. And I think the escape maneuver really would be flown at about 150 because he should be 150 knots over the top. Because he's going to lose that energy from about 350 knots all over the top to about 150 knots up here, okay? You can also be too fast at that gate. And a typhoon almost flew into uh, runway by being too fast. Because again, it's like a car, isn't it? If you're doing like, speed is quite important here. And the analogy being, if you're in a car and you're doing 10 miles an hour, the turning circle of that car can be quite small, can't it? 
probably a couple of meters. You could probably turn around in like your driveway or a, a car park, just turn your car around about 10 miles an hour. If you're doing 100 miles an hour in your car, that's a really, really wide turn, yeah? It's like massive turn, isn't it? You know what I mean? You're gonna take half, you know, it's motorway kind of style, that kind of thing. So um, same thing with a fast jet. If you're going really slowly, you can turn reasonably good angles, you know what I mean? Just get that turn, quite a small little radius. If you're going really fast, well, you pull, uh, it's gonna take you ages, really wide arc. So the faster that he's going, he's got more energy, but of course, he's gonna be using a wider arc, and he's, he's that height's gonna be greater for him that he's gonna achieve at the top of that maneuver. He's going quite slowly, so of course, everything's gonna be a bit kind of compressed, and unfortunately, that's what happens in this one. Um, so, Let's have a look. A change of ground track during the manoeuvre, not interested in that. The manoeuvre took place, have an area of occupied, that's public. Yeah, I don't care about that, it's all part of this. We're talking about the parameters now. Um, yeah, and then there were some issues about the display organiser, stuff like that. Couldn't care less, we're talking about parameters. So the pilots declared minimum entry speed for the manoeuvre was 350 knots. That's what he said he wanted to be at for this, and he enters up coming in at 310 knots. Now, one of the arguments here on the defence was that all these parameters were so off, not just his entry speed, not just the height that he was to start at, not, not even just the apex height, everything was so off, was so badly flown, he must have been cognitively impaired because he'd not flown like that badly before. All right, so we're gonna talk about that. There's some pilots that go, yes, I agree, and there's other pilots that go, that's absolute bollocks, whatever. Um, so then to aircraft into the maneuver at 310 knots, um, the minimum entry speed should have been 350. So now you're slow. What does that mean about energy? We spoke about that before. You've got less energy now, haven't you? Yeah. Think about your car coming off the motorway up one of those slip roads to the roundabout. If you come off at 60 knots, 60 knots, you come off at 60 miles an hour, you put the clutch in, put it into neutral. In America, you just put it into neutral. Um, you might not make it. You might just make it. If you come off at 100 knots, you're definitely going to make it. You know, 100 miles an hour, you're definitely going to make that. So it's all about energy again, isn't it? So the pilot's display authorization for the hunter stipulated the minimum height for executing aerobatics of 500 feet. The maneuver started at approximately, well, it was a distance from the display, doesn't matter, but at a height of about 185 plus or minus 25 feet. So about 200 feet. So started below the 500 feet. Again, I don't think that's too much of an issue, but it is below, so your apex is going to be lower. But you can sort that out on the climb if you've got the right energy. The problem is he didn't have the energy, did he? Engine speed varied during the upwards first thrust, of the, uh, first half of the maneuver as well. Uh, and this was contrary to the pilot's declared technique of using full thrust. Everyone uses full thrust in Hunter. Put the throttles forward. Use it in all jets, don't you, when you're displaying them. Put full power on. It's going to give you that thrust up there. As you come over the top, take a half throttle power. I think in the Hawk we put it back to 90%. Stood the throttle up. Can't remember now. Don't worry about it. It's in the Hawk anymore anyway. It's all air combat. Whatever the T1 does um, when they're practicing aerobatics now. I can't remember. T2 doesn't do aerobatics. Um, I can't remember the call now. He does other things. Um, whatever. So... At the top of that loop, I guess he would have pulled the throttle back. But what I believe is being said also is that it was so unusual to not have full power in the climb. It's another proof of cognitive impairment. You've got a lot of things now. You're not using full power. You're at the wrong height. You're at the wrong speed. You're at the wrong apex over the top. I mean, that's poor, right? That's poor. And so it's either he's cognitively impaired or he's the gaseous pilot I've ever met. And everyone is telling me that he's not gash. All right. Everyone's telling me that. You know, everyone's telling that, right? You can read it online. So the minimum height loss during the downward half of looping maneuver in the Hawker Hunter is between 2,600 and 2,950 feet. Ah, so we say we'll go default on 3,000 feet for that. That's the height you're gonna lose. If you were to roll upside down at about 5,000 feet and you were gonna pull, you, you should bottom out about 2,000 feet. So we're gonna use 3,000 feet for this. Um, and obviously the air's more dense, these things tighten up. 
irrespective as you, as you get lower. So the pilot stated that he required a minimum height of 3,500 feet at the apex of the maneuver. That's when he's upside down to ensure that he completed it by 500 feet or more above the ground as required by the display authority. So when he's upside down, boom, he's done a bit of a bend roll. He's gone up like this. He's kind of rotated a little bit. He's gone there, check wings, happy, check my altimeter, 3,500 feet. That's what he should be at, all right? That's what he should be at there. He also check his speed as well and go, if he's at 100 knots, he's like, oh, I've got a bit of a problem here. And this is why parameters are important because you can't sort of then go, oh, I've got the height, but I don't have the speed. What shall I do? You're committing. The nose is dropping. That shit's worked out on the ground before you get airborne, all right? You give yourself, this is what we could talk about when we talk about parameters for civilian use, me, veteran use, whatever you want to call it, in everyday um, in my everyday world, in your everyday world, have parameters so that, and we'll talk about this a little bit. So when you do drop a grade in your A-levels, you plan for it before, you know, in your mind when it was calm, you've planned for that. You're not allowed working on it and trying to go, oh, what should I do before the university shut? Whatever, you should have planned that stuff. So, um, and that's what I come and talk to businesses about. So what he's saying is he should have 3,500 feet upside down and 150 knots and he can carry on. Happy, happy days. Didn't have that. Didn't have either one of those, to be honest with you. So, um, the aircraft achieved an apex height of approximately 2,700 feet. Should be 3,500. He's 2,700. Alarm bells. All right. The airspeed at the apex, that's at the top again, uh, where he's at 2,700 feet, was 105 knots, plus or minus two. So 105 knots, uh, which was the lower end of a pilot's, of his declared airspeed range of 100 to 150. So he's low on airspeed because he started off low on airspeed as well. We understand why that is. If he was at 350 knots, he'd probably be at 150 knots at the top. He was at 310 knots. Strangely enough, he's around about 110, isn't he? He's about 105. So now he's got a problem. There's a bigger problem there as well now because to fly an escape maneuver from 100 knots is a difficult thing in a hunter, apparently. What you're going to have to do is you're going to have to let that nose come down a bit to give you some energy, and then you're going to have to start rolling. Because if you were to roll and put loads of rudder in as well, there's every chance, not in the hunter so much, he's quite forgiving, but other aircraft, you could depart them. You could end up being a recipient in a spin and then you're into a recovery and then you're into an ejection, whatever. So, because um, you're below your minute, you, you know, you're getting below your abandonment height because by default, you're probably at it already because you're displaying below 5,000 feet and 5,000 feet tends to be a pretty decent ejection height. So what I'm saying is you've got you to plan these things. You've got to go, right, if I'm at 100 knots, if I'm less than, say, 120 knots at the top of my apex and I'm actually not on my apex, do I continue that maneuver? And on the ground, you decide yourself yes or no. Because you... Because you might not be at 3,500 feet and 150 knots. You might be at variants of that, you know what I'm saying? So you might have 3,500 feet, tick, but you might only have 100 knots. Well, now do you continue? And that's what you chat to your people about and you display authorizer on the ground and everyone else. And you say, well, is that so bad? Well, no, it's not so bad because you can bring those down. You gain a bit of speed on the way down. You're fine. Or you might say, well, you know, I'm at, I might be at 3,000 feet, so well below, but I might have like 200 knots. And everyone goes, oh, yeah, it's fine. Well, it's not fine because you've got more energy now. So your circle is going to be bigger on the way down and you're lower. That's a really dangerous thing. But up there, when the sun's in your face, radios are calling you, you might have smoking fumes anyway a little bit because these jets, you know, some of them just have a lot of fumes in them and they all smell a bit greasy and stuff. Um, you know, you're under G as well. So there is a lack of blood in the head anyway. So there is a lack of oxygen. All pilots are flying. All fast jet pilots are flying. Um, to a certain extent with cognitive impairment anyway, because by definition, under G, uh, as I said, there is a lack of oxygen in the brain because there's just not as much, there's not as much blood in the brain. We'll talk about that in a minute. These decisions should be made on the ground before you even get airborne. There's no point being up there in the jet and going, oh, I'll just have a little bit of a look at it. So a professional pilot like Andy Hill, is he having a bit of a gash moment? Probably not. He's probably impaired at that point. Well, I'm not even making that decision. What I'm saying is a jury have decided he is, all right? These comments are going to be vicious, aren't they? 
So what I'm saying is he's then committed down back into that manoeuvre well outside parameters, such as Chris Strickland did in the Thunderbird there. And you saw what happened to Chris Strickland and, and then you saw what happened to um, Andy Hill as well. So what we're saying in this particular thing is that he's got parameters he should adhere to. He's not reached those parameters and he's continued that manoeuvre. Now, if that could have been proven that he was conscious of what he was doing and it was a deliberate act, the outcome of the jury would have been very different. But the defence was saying that there was a cognitive impairment, which meant that he doesn't, well, he doesn't remember anything anyway, but they're saying he must have been cognitively impaired, which means that he was operating sub, you know, I below what he should have been operating at. Now, as a pilot, any pilot would tell you who's ever flown a fast jet, as I said before, if you're above about 34,000 feet, you have a lack of oxygen in your brain anyway, because you've got to have to start to be forced into your lungs um, because you can't get the amount of oxygen you need. We'll talk about that in a second. But also, if you're under G, by definition, you're impaired. You just are you're not getting the amount of oxygen to your brain but you prepare for that you, you're prepared for it and you've done it a thousand times anyway now there's a guy mark petrie here who flies strike master and he said had andy been fully conscious and aware i would have expected he would have spotted that height at the top of the maneuver was incorrect and he should then have easily been able to fly an escape maneuver and then carry on with his display or stop altogether that's a strike master pilot very similar to the hunter um, I think we see him again a bit later on actually but the key to this as well is another thing is that it's not easy to fly an escape manoeuvre at around about 100 knots from a hunter you've got to use a bit of height below and that kind of stuff um, so I'm not saying that would be easy just to carry on manoeuvre because those parameters would look pretty horrendous for anyone that was supposed to be at a certain parameter height and speed and they're at a different one and they were like I'm going to carry on so something weird's happened there anyway something strange happened there I'm not going to comment because I wasn't in the jet was I so what Andy Hill's defence said was that the routine was so badly executed that the only explanation was that the experienced pilot was cognitively impaired, possibly due to gravitational forces or a lack of oxygen. Same thing. Because you can take your mask off and you can breathe normally below 10,000 feet. All right. Above 10,000 feet, oxygen starts getting reduced. Speak to private pilots, they don't tend to fly above uh, 10,000 feet. I think the Grob Tutor doesn't fly, the Grob Prefect, sorry, without oxygen, that ascent brought in, doesn't fly above 10,000 feet, hasn't got oxygen. I think it might be 12 actually, but anyway, irrespective. Uh, above that, though, you start needing to put oxygen on. So he's operating, you know, down about three or 4,000 feet, isn't he, Andy Hill? So when it's a lack of oxygen, um, I think the defense didn't fully understand what they were talking about, and they said uh, maybe he wasn't getting oxygen in from the mask. But because the, there's oxygen in the cockpit, obviously there's ram air coming into it, so you could fly without a mask if you wanted to. But the mask has the microphone in it as well for communicating with air traffic, so you need the mask on just to speak. But you could fly the whole display without a mask if you wanted to. You don't need oxygen because there's oxygen around you. Uh, although if there was smoking fumes from burning equipment or something, yes, that mask should be on you because then you, you've got oxygen coming into it, so therefore you're protected from the environment outside. Um, so what it's saying really is uh, gravitational forces or a lack of oxygen. But what I'm saying is it's the same thing because when you're under G because the blood in your head contains oxygen. Once that gets forced out of you, especially if you're not straining properly, and we'll talk about that in a minute, um, there is just a lack of oxygen in your brain. It's less oxygen than it would be normally. So factually correct statement from the defense, even though I'm not overly convinced they knew what they were talking about with that statement, guys, that statement, because uh, they've separated gravitational forces and a lack of oxygen. Right, so let's talk about gross negligence manslaughter, shall we? Now, this is where the death is a result of a grossly negligent though otherwise lawful, um, act or omission on the part of the defendant. And this law is in respect of this has been clarified in a, there's a case back in 1994, I don't care about that. Uh, but it did come out with a four-stage test for gross negligence, um, manslaughter. 
uh, and that was outlined in the House of Lords. There's four things really that this test has to satisfy in order for gross negligence to be ticked. So if you want to say that guy was grossly negligent of what he did, he needs to have gone through these four things. I'm just going to check I'm still recording here, guys. Yeah. So what are those four things I hear you cry? Well, let me read them out to you. The four stages of gross negligence then as a charge, um, gross negligence manslaughter, is um, the defendant owed a duty to the deceased to take care. Yes, he did. The defendant breached this duty. Well, yeah, he landed his jet on 11, on, on 11 people, didn't he, and killed them all. So, yes, he did breach that duty. The breach caused the death of the deceased. Factually correct statement. And the last one, the defendant's negligence was gross. That is, it showed such a disregard for life and safety of others as to amount to a crime and deserve punishment. Ah, that's a difficult one. I've got the first three. Was it... Was it was it such a disregard for life that it was criminal and deserved punishment? I he didn't intend to do it, did he? And he didn't walk out to that jet that morning and go, you know what? I'm going to start off well outside parameters, leave my throttle, don't care about power, get to the top. I'm not even going to look at those altimeters. Couldn't care less about speed. Going to crack on anyway, and I'm going to land my jet on eleven people, and I'm going to kill them all. He didn't say that, did he? It's didn't. It's absolutely ridiculous. No one's ever going to believe that. Uh, no one's ever going to believe that for a second. He was fighting that jet the whole way down. You can see it. In fact, what you can see is wing drop at the last stage. Uh, and that's an accelerated stall condition of the aircraft, in my opinion, guys, where he's literally pulled through the lift boundary. Most aircraft had wash out on the wings to prevent a tip stall. Uh, and the aircraft is stalled and the wing has dropped down there. So it makes me realize that he's on what we call the, um, the accelerated stall boundary. And we'll see that later in a, uh, another service inquiry that I'm going to talk about. And he's gone beyond it. And the wings dropped at the last minute. So he's fighting the aircraft the whole way down, which means to me that he's conscious, at least, which means he's not suffering a condition of G-induced loss of consciousness. Factually correct, he's not unconscious in that airplane. We can see that from the film. Uh, but as to whether he's uh, you know, partially conscious, we can talk about that in a second. So the, the last one, then, as I said, it's really hard to prove, isn't it, that he showed such a disregard for life and safety of others as to amount to a crime and deserve punishment. How do you prove that? especially when he doesn't remember. How do you prove that? Personally, I, I don't think anyone listening to me now would say that his, his, his negligence was gross. That is, he showed a disregard for life and safety of others as to amount to a crime and deserve punishment. That's a really hard one to stomach. Irrespective, guys, I'm not making a decision here. I'm just interested in your debate. Whack down the comments. Gross negligent manslaughter can be said to apply where the defendant commits a lawful act in such a way as to render the actions criminal. Wow, really difficult one, that. So there's another statement here that kind of helps that a little bit where it says, where it starts talking about how bad the negligence actually has to be. Um, it says, so it says basically how, how bad negligence has to be to be characterized as gross, right? And it says here, there was a case again back in 2016, a proper direction to the jury on the issue of gross negligence was held in the case back in 2016 to be that they should be sure that their conduct in question was something truly exceptionally bad and which showed a departure from the standard to be expected so as to constitute the very serious crime of manslaughter the bar is thus set high perhaps unsurprisingly so given that such cases ordinarily involve no criminal intent that's why that police officer said to the family at the very beginning that it's very difficult to prove these things because the bar is set very high remember i read out that statement where he said um we're always the family said we're always told by the police that to prove guilty 
due to gross negligence, the bar was set very high. Well, that police officer, I'm not saying he's read that statement, but he may as well have done because it's exactly the same thing, isn't it? It says here, the bar is thus set high, perhaps unsurprisingly so, given that such cases ordinarily involve no criminal intent. And what it means is, we are all assuming here that Andy Hill didn't go out that day to, to, to commit a crime, right? Of course he bloody didn't. Of course he didn't. It's ridiculous. Well, is it? I don't know. I wasn't on the jury. Uh, I'm just thinking from a pilot's point of view that when I flew, I never knew anyone ever in my 20 years. Factually correct statement, guys, that took an airplane and went out to commit a crime with it. Never heard of it. I'm not saying... Now, I flew within a very um, uh, regimented construct of the Royal Air Force, of course. Don't get me wrong. Um, the bunch of radical free thinkers that we're supposed to be. And, of course, we're not, are we? We're all clones of each other uh, in a very conformist structure. However, comma... No one ever went out and did anything wrong ever. I knew one incident actually, um, and the guy was removed from the flying display for that. A friend of mine, a really good guy, actually a really good pilot. Uh, and that was just, and it wasn't a criminal act he ever did. It was a case of flying in discipline. He was removed, more than happy. He put his hand up and went, yeah, I messed up there. I was trying to hide something. Sorry, guys. That was it. That was one time. Crazy when you think about it. But that's because we self-regulate as well. So if anyone was to do that, everyone looks at them and goes, dude, what's, what's up? Stop being a dick. You know, we're trying to be professional here. Uh, a prosecutor here says, uh, this is the prosecutor in this case, a guy called Tom Clark, um, QC, told the jurors there is not a single piece of research that low-level G-forces lead to cognitive impairment. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, that probably is correct. But how do you define what low-level is? You know, if he's like, low-level G-forces below 9G, I'm like, oh, dude, that's not low-level, is it? If he's talking low-level G-forces below 1G, I'm at 1G now. I'm, I don't think I'm cognitively impaired, other than what I normally am, of course, through weird aspects of not drinking for six weeks, whatever it might be. Um, but if he's talking below 3G, well, okay, maybe we could believe that below 3G, there's not a single piece of research that low-level G-forces below 3G liter. If he's talking 4G, well, hang on a second now, because I've struggled at 4G. 5G hurts people. Six, seven, eight, nine, go and speak to the typhoon mate who's done a 9G break turn. I've got to ask him to see their little pooling of blood and all their, yeah, it hurts. So, what is that low level? And how's a jury even supposed to work out what low level is? They're going to sit there and go, oh, was Andy Hill at low level amounts of G then, was he? Was he not at huge amount of G? Because I know he's flying a low level loop. Does that mean he's at low level G? There's a lot of confusion there, right? So maybe we could have, we, I'm not responsible, maybe the prosecutor could have actually maybe, um, there's not a single piece of research that low level G forces lead to cognitive impairment. I don't know, maybe he had a whiteboard out and he started chalking up some diagrams, I don't know. Right, so let's have a look then. What happened here? Um, proving the case requires you to be sure that Andy Hill acted grossly negligent. Negligently, sorry. That that his conscious or deliberate actions were so exceptionally bad that he showed an indifference to an obvious and serious risk for the lives of the people on board. I think that's the prosecutor again, by the way. So we see how the problems are. You see why there's opinions over this, over what's happened. Um, I'm going to jump you in now to a another service inquiry where cognitive impairment was most definitely a factor. Uh, and I did that one back in 2011. It took out uh, eight months, I think I was with that, pretty much six months on location, a couple months back when I was um, flying back to Bali uh, with another two guys. And it was a really sad case, this one. It was the Red Arrows um, fatality of a friend of mine called John Egim. Uh, my brother knows him very well, or knew him very well, sorry, and I know his wife very well. Um, and uh, it was a horrible thing to uh, to have happened for the team as a whole and obviously for for, for John's for John's wife. So um, that was on 20th of August back in 2011. And the reason I want to talk about that then, because the causal factor of that accident was something called a lock. Right, let's talk about it then, shall we? So 
two real things that can happen. In fact, there's kind of third, really, if you want to talk about it. It's st stages of of uh, becoming unconscious due to a lack of oxygen in the brain. First one, then we're gonna we're gonna talk now. So we're we're set at one G in an airplane, then we roll it on the side. We've got a lot of speed on because there's a speed G relationship. The faster you go, the more G you can pull until the wings break on an airplane. And we start pulling, and say we can pull up to about nine G. And we're not wearing G pants, so maybe we are. Doesn't matter. And we can start pulling up to about nine times our own body weight. My arm will weigh nine times the amount it weighs now um, at nine G. So we start pulling, and about one half, two G, three G. I assume these are low level amounts of G. I don't know. Um, what we're going to start getting is some uh, some monochromatic uh, contrast issues with our sight, especially. We feel our body sinking to the seat. Um, everything will get a bit kind of like heavier. We go, all right, cool. We start moving our head around, and we find that our head, about two, three, four G, gets really kind of difficult to move. When you move it, it's like your chin wants to fall down like this. So you've got to really start working, and that work should have really started as you started pulling the G. There's no point now retrospectively going, I better start straining, because that's kind of fatal in, in some ways. Um, and if you strain too early as well, it can be fatal because you dilute the blood vessels early. And what that means is the blood, the heart goes, oh, I've got high blood pressure and I'm not pulling any G. And then it starts dilating the blood vessels. And when you do pull G, all the blood just flows through dilated blood vessels. That's some pre-straining technique, which is probably why it's not a great idea. So, um, and then what happens, so two, three, four, five G, all of a sudden what's happening is then you're getting this monochromatic myopic vision coming in. So as I said, you start to lose colors, the blood flows out of the eyes. So color definition is poor, everything seems a bit gray. You might start feeling a bit nauseous. Um, I do feel nauseous without G pants on, by the way, never felt nauseous with G pants on because I've got something to strain against, but without G pants, I start going a little feel a bit yucky. And then um, the blood's obviously flowing out. So you get this, the peripheral reduction as there's a lack of blood in the eye. And it's actually something that, you have to kind of think about, oh, I can't see in my peripheral as much as I, as I normally can. Um, because if you tell someone about it, they don't really notice that they're losing their peripheral vision. They're also losing a lot of their, their, their senses as well in this stage. Uh, and then six, seven, uh, eight, nine G, everything starts closing in. It starts getting much grayer. And this is what you start talking about, grayer or blackout. You can be blacked out, but not unconscious, by the way. You can still hear. Hearing is the last thing to go, which is why if you're the road victim or a road accident victim or, or, or a victim of an accident, you can you, you pinch their ear, you know, give them a rub of the chest and start talking to them because they might be able to still hear, even if they are unconscious. I'm just going to bring up my camera, guys, make sure I'm still going out. Still going out. 49 minutes. I better get on with this, eh? Um, and then... Just keep pinching your ear. It's the hearing's the last thing to go. But you could actually be in an airplane now flying and not seeing anything at all. Um, and still in control. Tiger, tiger. Then you can flip into something called A-lock or P-lock. So A-lock and P-lock. A-lock is almost loss of consciousness. P-lock is partial loss of consciousness. They are the same thing, but different militaries around the world use different terms. Um, I, I don't know which one I prefer. Couldn't care less. I think in the service inquiry into John, Egg John Eggin, we found the causal factor was... ALOC, so almost loss of consciousness. I think it's the Americans that call it PLOC, but the US Navy might call it ALOC. Weird. And what that means is that um, if I was flying next to you in an airplane, we're in a little uh, little aerobatic piper or something. I don't even know what is aerobatic, sorry guys. But I'm next to you, right? And I say, hey, what's my aerobatic dis display? And you're like, yeah, you're a legend, Tim. Off you go, hero. Off I go, full power, come up to a loop, come down the other side, and I'm pulling 4G, look over at that dude, and he's like, just his head's down like this, and he's sat in his chair. Now, one of two things happen. He's either in A-lock or he's in G-lock. We'll talk about G-lock in a second. If he's in A-lock, I should be able to go, Steve, Steve. And he'll go, oh, what? oh, sorry, Tim. Yeah, what's happened there? It's a bit crazy. And he's straight back in the game. That's A-lock and P-lock. Same thing, right? He's back in the game. Almost partial. Back in the game. I could hit him like that. Oh, sorry, Tim. Yeah, what's up? Yeah. Oh, oh, my turn. My turn. Go. He knows where he is. Back in the game. Or she. Don't get freaky in the comments. Right. Difference being G-lock. Here I am, 9G break turn, 4G break turn, 2.5G, 3G, depends what you have for breakfast, depends how many beers you had, doesn't matter. 
all of a sudden, a bit of G, especially if he's not prepared for it, straight away, bang, he's down. Doesn't have to be straight away, of course. You could be fighting for a long time. If you watch some of those centrifuge videos, you see guys fighting 9G and eventually they're like, <clears throat> lack of oxygen in the brain, bang, they're down. Proper G-lock's going to take you 40 seconds to recover from. Have a think about that for a second. If you are G-locked, i.e. you are suffering from G-induced loss of consciousness, that's an absence of, of um, oxygen from the brain. It means the brain is literally gone. I need to protect myself. I'm going to shut myself down because the brain uses a whole world of resources. It's max, max. It's hugely oxygen heavy, right? And it goes, I need to, I need to stop using this oxygen. Same thing when you strangle someone. They go, oh, I'm unconscious. Um, the brain's like, I've got to shut myself down here because I've got to minimize the resources to keep my oxygen going into the heart, to keep myself alive. I'm going to shut down the thing that uses oxygen more than anything else, the brain, bang, okay? Cerebral um, oxygen hypoxia in effect, it's, it's a depletion of oxygen in the brain. Shuts yourself down. Now you're in a state of G-lock. If you were to come around, you're like all groggy, you don't even know where you are. I'm going to read you something from a friend of mine who actually had this um, displaying a hawk, and I'm going to do it at the bottom. So a little statement here about G-lock. Um, so blackout is the first stage where you might be with an air cadet, and you're like, can you see? And he's like, I can't see anything, can't see anything, still talking to you. Is this grayed or blacked out? It's all monochromatic, you can't see anything. Then it goes into AOP lock, then it goes into G-lock. G-lock can be fatal. Anyone can be fatal. I mean, we thought John Leggin was in A-lock, um, and that was fatal for him. Don't want to go into John Leggin's one too much, really. I don't think it's that relevant for me to start bringing it up here in the context of uh, the whole service thing, other than the fact that it was to do with cognitive impairment. Right. Yeah, fine. So, yeah, so A-lock... ALOC almost or partial is a symptom that a syndrome that includes a wide, a wide variety of cognitive, physical, emotional, and physiological symptoms. While ALOC has been observed in centrifuge studies and reported in flight, a definitive description of the syndrome does not really exist other than Tim's, um, which is a real partial loss. But you can get them back in a second if you if you shout at them. As part of that that inquiry that we did back in 2011, one of the things we said to the Royal Air Force Aerobatics Team, the radar at the time, is we said, look guys, it might be beneficial for you guys to pre-strain. This was early on in, in our report. We said, um, well, we think this is an ALOC issue. We think that there's a depletion of oxygenated blood to the brain for John uh, on the brake, which is a 6.9 G accelerated brake. So G onset rate was 6.9 G, and then up to a maximum of, um, so 6.9 G per second. That's faster than the Typhoon pools, by the way. The Hawk D1 is a, is a dangerous little aircraft for snapping on G. Uh, and then uh, it stabilized about 6.3 G over about five seconds before uh, John went into a state of A-lock and then impacted the ground. Reducing the controls, by the way, there was throttle movement as well. And we think the body was moving forward, hands were moving forward, everything relaxed. So there was throttle movement there and everything else. Um, so we thought about saying, well, look, you need to pre-strain. But the problem with pre-straining, as we later realized, was that what happens is you... Um, you increase the blood pressure in the heart. The heart says, oh, I've got increased blood pressure. I'll dilate some blood vessels quickly and therefore let the blood go out. And then you start pulling G and all the blood just flushes out and it's even worse for you. So we stopped telling them that. In the REDS report that we did, and I've got it here, there is a, there is a, a few things in it that talk about um, G-induced impairment can only be diagnosed by exclusion, i.e. at the exclusion of everything else. Then you come back to that. And the problem is when there was a fatality in this particular one, it was very difficult for us to, to prove that um, the fatality of John's death was, was caused by um, this, this ALOC or the, the loss of consciousness due to oxygen depletion in the brain. So we had to disprove everything else first. That makes sense. I think Sherlock Holmes says something about that, doesn't he? And so when's what's left, no matter how improbable it might be, it has to be the truth. And, and that's it. So everything else, everything else we went through 
I don't even want to go into what it was now. If you type in XX179RAFAT, that's I-F-A-T, um, service inquiry, you'll find the entire report. Crack on. It's a long one. Uh, however, I'll try and read you bits here. So the panel concluded that pilot incapacitation resulting from G-induced impairment was a possible cause of the accident. And this will be discussed in greater detail later in the port, which is the next section here. And it says, after any fatal accident, a diagnosis of G-induced impairment can only, made, only be made by exclusion. Hence, all the non-medical, technical, engineering and HF possible cause of the accident need to be eliminated before a diagnosis of G-induced impairment could be made. It makes sense. The same thing with Andy Hill. He says, I don't remember anything at all. Therefore, it's up to the, um, the prosecution now to go and prove, isn't it? To prove that, um, that he was uh, in a cognitively impaired state. Wow. And that is a difficult one. Uh, okay, so where are we now? So, yeah, if there's any doubt or uncertainty, then the jury is to acquit. So, in short, the acquittal meant that the jury were not satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that the crash was caused by Hill's flying being so bad as to meet the test we talked about above, uh, member, which was outside the normal bounds of um, competence that we spoke about. So, uh, truly exceptionally bad, which showed a departure from the standard to be expected. So the jury would have to believe that, in effect, and actually believe that he was G-impaired. We're coming up to the end now, guys, and I just want to talk to you a little bit about this. So it was reported that the jury were told that it must decide if the prosecution had proved cognitive impairment had not affected Mr. Hill during the flight. So basically, gross negligence was not proved beyond reasonable doubt. That's why Andy Hill was found not guilty argue if you think that was a good or bad thing and I personally not got an opinion on it apart from UK law I mean black and white guys you know we need to be really careful about our opinions because we need to you, you, I get opinions going well I think it's wrong fine crack on stand on a hill and tell someone else couldn't care less to be honest with you generally couldn't but the law is different to your opinion the law is factually based he was not he's not on the opinion of John and, or opinion of Steve or opinion of Mike on my Facebook page is that's not the that's not the court of your opinion it's the court of UK law and the court of UK law says he's not guilty now what the coroner says or a civil prosecution is, is fundamentally different we've talked about grey out we've talked about blackout oh yeah playing the grey yeah that's a dangerous one so some people like sit there under G and go oh if I ease off it comes a bit clearer and if I pull more it gets a bit narrower and, and before you know it bang you are out and then you're just in a hole somewhere so don't play the grey if you're listening and you're a civvy pilot. If you're starting to get that shit, something physically is wrong with you. Physiologically, it's wrong, or you're just being a dick. You're not straining properly. Get a mate to sit next to you and test your G-straining manoeuvre. Um, and we're not talking about transient G like Red Bull pull. Like Red Bull pull 13G, they do for about half a second. Bang, off, okay? Blood's gone. No blood, still oxygen. Back up again, all right? Your brain hasn't got... So what happened there? Nothing. If you sit there for five or six seconds, you become unconscious. So Red Bull aircraft, high transient G-loads. And the guys are exceptionally fit as well. I was going to talk to you about the makeup properties of air. I can't bother. I was also going to talk about why you need to get force-fed air as you get high and to talk about oxygen depletion as you climb up. Um, I'm not. What I will say, though, there's a link here I can, I can click on, which is a graph. <coughs> Excuse me, guys. And it talks about altitude oxygen chart. And all I'm going to say about this chart, really, and you can find it online if you want to do that. Uh, oxygen, uh, as part of air, is about 21% of all air. The rest is about nitrogen, some argon, and some other stuff really I can't remember you have to look it up a little bits and pieces we need nitrogen we need oxygen so oxygen is about 21% at sea level but then at the top of Everest for example on my chart of doom it says that it's about 7% uh, 
Uh, and you start going into the death zone around about 18,000 feet, really, where seriously your brain can't function. It's actually a bit lower than that. It's about 13,000, as I said, from flying. But above 18, that death zone there is like you cannot stay in this without supplementary oxygen or conditioning that allows you to do so. Either way, um, at 18,000 feet, you've got half the amount of oxygen you would have had at sea level. Factually correct. So what you need to be doing then is starting to um, add more oxygen in, and then you need about 100% oxygen when you start uh, up around about 34,000 feet and then pressure breathing to force it into your lungs don't talk about it anymore guys we're not talking about that I'm going to leave you with this then right I'm going to leave you with this um, there's a real issue with this cognitive impairment ish statement though and I think a lot of pilots are sitting there listening to me now if they are still thank you I appreciate it going well what are we can do about this now Tim I'm like I'm with you on it because anyone that's had a anyone that could have a crash in future can go guys just want to point out that I have no recollection of that but I do think that I must have been cognitively impaired. That's the only way I can think about it. Now, I, I don't know whether that's going to be something that is going to be something we'll see more of in the future. Um, remember, Andy Hill said, well, I missed my entry height. I missed my entry speed. Uh, the throttle was in the wrong position. I missed my apex. I still did the roll. Still went for a line feature. But then I, you know, I missed, I, I, I was wrong height, wrong speed over the top. Everything was, you know, so I must have been cognitively impaired. And then the argument the other pilots I know uh, talk to me about it's like, well, hang on a second. Is he cognitively impaired because of the manoeuvre? Prior to the manoeuvre, was he cognitively impaired before he got out of bed? Before he stepped to the jet, was he cognitively impaired? Um, was he strapped in? Was he smoking fumes? Was the, you know, what, when? Where, of course, he doesn't know, does he? Because he, he can't remember. And rightly so, he's in a coma for a month because he got torn out of a jet. Didn't a jet, got torn out of a jet. Now, there's, um, there are other issues with this, by the way, guys. Uh, so what one of the parents is saying, well, how do we allow any aerobatics to be formed now when there's, there's now doubt concerning any pilot's ability to avoid becoming cognitively impaired from the normal G-forces that we experience during aerobatic display. Because this parent is assuming that the cognitive impairment is due to the G-forces. And as I said, it might be due to something else irrespective of that. Um, my issue with the defense of cognitive impairment personally is, is that you want to do things that are dangerous. You think about it before you get into the jet. And that's where we're going to start talking about parameters in about two minutes where we start talking about like, what happens if I do this? So with those, those, those events, as I said before, what happens if you're at the wrong speed? You're at the wrong height? You know what I mean? What happens if, you, if you're feeling the effects of G as you go up the side of the loop there? I'm like, I'm struggling with this. I've done it with air combat before. I've gone into a break zone. I've gone, I am going to have to work hard on this sortie. Now, I'm very, I was very experienced when I was doing it. But, you know, a lot of people will go, no, you've got to go home. It's like, no, I know where I am. I've been there before. I know that limitation. But I'm going to have to work hard on this sortie now. Harder than I thought I was going to have to work. I'm in my limits. Other people have gone up, done a break zone. I've gone, that has hit me. And in fact, on John Egan's one where they all did their, their break from low level, um, which was the most G they pulled in the entire sortie, by the way, was on the break back into Bournemouth. Um, they had not pulled that amount of G on the rest of the, the whole display. Um, other people on the team went, this is going to hurt. And it did hurt. It was a lot of G to pull. And that's in the report. You can read that, by the way. Uh, just making sure there's nothing else in the report. I can actually... No, I don't think there is. Thunderbird, stats. Uh, this report is... No, that's fine. There's nothing else with, with, with John's report that we need to really go into. Just obviously alluding to the fact that cognitive impairment is, is a real thing. Uh, that was to do with um, uh, loss of consciousness through um, reduction of oxygen in the brain. Right. A lot of people are saying, well, if you felt he was impaired, he should have stopped. And the whole point with impairment and cognitive impairment is you don't know you're impaired because you're impaired. Does that make sense? You're not thinking straight, so you don't know you're not thinking straight. And that's what some of the families have an issue with. It's like, well, how do we know another aerobatics pilot doesn't know what they're thinking about? How do we know that? Yeah, I get it. I'm with you on that one. Let's go to an example from Valley then, from a friend of mine. Uh, back in 2005, was a Hawk display pilot on the Hawk T1. And he has a great report, in fact. He was doing a display that involved um, what we call a push-pull. 
push is where you push the stick forward, so all the blood goes to the head, and then pull is where you pull the stick back, all the blood goes to your feet, and it's more likely to go to your feet because we talked about the dilation of the blood vessels before, didn't we? You push the stick forward, he was doing an outside turn, he came in, he rolled, he was like, eh, outside turn, canopy like this, eh, horrible, 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 anyone watches this goes, why are you even bothering? And then he rolled and he pulls his three and a half G wing over, eh, like this, positive. Very dangerous, stupid thing to do. Factually correct, and the guy in 2010, a friend of mine, did exactly the same thing, and now he would tell anyone it was a stupid thing to put into the routine. And his display supervisor should have said, no, you're not doing that, because his one was even worse. The problem is, when you push and you put all the blood up to the brain, it's called negative G, the brain goes, I've got so much blood in my brain, this is outrageous, the heart's giving it all out. The heart's like, I need to get rid of this, I need to get rid of this, this is gonna cause my brain to explode, there's too much blood in the brain, dilute every single blood vessel I've got, sorry, dilate open them up, expand all the blood vessels I can to try and get some of that blood out. And it's doing that at the time. It's going, I'm getting that blood out. The blood's coming away from it because I've opened up all the blood vessels. And then the pilot, because he's an idiot, doesn't know anything about display flying, goes, have some positive G. And that blood, through wider blood vessels now, the blood vessels are like this. And then the heart went, and the brain went, just open up a bit because I've got too much blood in my brain. It went like that. Then the pilot goes, have some positive G. Blood now rushes out, unconscious in a second. All right? And the guy did it in 2005, exactly happened to him. So what he did, he said, um, here he said, I was doing a practice at RF Valley mid-season to extend my currency in accordance with support command regulations at that stage. To get maximum value at the trip, I decided to do two full shows, then one flat show. It's a different way of doing displays. Um, everything was fine until the third run through and I went from an outside turn, outside turn, uh, into a hard pitch for a wing over. So minus three and a half, he says here, to plus six and a half G. And then he just went, he says. I was probably about 30 degrees nose up when I lost vision and then went unconscious. After a few seconds, I guess, uh, and normally it can be anything up to, as I said, 40 seconds, I recovered enough to realize I was in a jet going up, but I probably wouldn't have been able to do very much about it if I wasn't going in the right direction. Uh, for another couple of seconds, I then rolled out and stopped the display. I mean, the only thing I can guess from the fact, well, how quickly it all happened, was my boss, who was observing from the tower, didn't even notice anything was wrong and assumed I just reached minimum fuel and because I said to him before I went, I'll stop my third show when I get down to bingo fuel, I'll need to land when I'm feeling I've done enough for currency. And so he just thought I'd reached that point when I terminated the show three or four maneuvers early, whatever it was. But I was definitely aware that I'd gone and there was nothing I could do about it. That's G-induced loss of consciousness pretty much. Or, you know, if it isn't G-induced loss of consciousness, it's, um, it's, an, it's an A-lock or a P-lock situation. But the stressor there is that he's gone from a negative to a positive G. So what I'm saying is there's cognitive impairment in that airplane at that time. It makes sense. Uh, so really, I think, hopefully that gives you a bit of an understanding about why the cognitive impairment defense was such an interesting one and why the parameters in aviation are just so critically important. We used to stress on the T1 um, that used to get downwind 1,000 feet, beam the upwind threshold. You want to be 1,000 feet at 190 knots and you want to set that power back to 80%. If you're struggling with any one of those parameters, you're trying to catch it up the whole way, whole way downwind. You're trying to get one of those parameters. Before you know it, you're tipping in, you're too hot, you're, you're not configured properly, you're in a world of pain, you really are. So it all starts what we call it the upwind turn. And that's what I'm trying to get across to people in CB life. It's like, when I wake up, this is what I do personally, I make my bed and it is the tidiest bed ever. Because what that's saying is I've got discipline now and the first thing in the morning and what I've done is I've demonstrated that to myself. I've said, look, I've made my bed, everything's squared away. The night before, I've laid things out, so I'm going for a run. I've got my shoes ready, I've got my running kit ready. If I'm going to have breakfast, I know everything is. I've laid everything out, ready to go. Um, I'm trying to uh, place order in my day to give myself boundaries in a certain direction. 
that's what my parameters are. Um, for example, I was chatting to my wife a minute ago. She's uh, back up north now. She's driving on the road. Now she's driving along a 30 mile an hour road. Strangely enough, she's driving at 30 miles an hour. That's her parameter for that piece of road. Because if she knows she's fast for that, she might actually kill someone, like a kid running out behind a car, or she might get a speeding ticket from one of those mobile vans or whatever. So she knows that's a parameter for her. She's in those parameters. So you've got your own parameters. A lot of people's parameters are whack though. And that's what I'm saying. It's like we have all our parameters in our everyday life. And when you go outside those parameters, as Andy Hills found out in this particular evolution, bad things are going to happen. So you've got to be able to say to yourself, what happens if I'm outside my parameter? Not like, I'll crack on and see how it is, i.e., what happens if you don't get all the A-level results you want? So I know a lot of people are like, well, when, I, when I'm looking at an A and two Bs, and then I'm going to go to this college and this college, and you say to them, what if you get a D? I haven't thought about that. No, I know you haven't thought about that. There's no point thinking about it when you get a D, is there? Because now all the colleges you were going to apply to that you've never even, or the ones that you now need to apply to that you've never even looked at before, all these universities that will only accept ABD, you've been looking at AAB or ABB, all of a sudden, those universities, you don't even know which one to look at because you haven't even thought about it. And now you've got a D. And now by the time you've gone in your manuals or your prospectuses and you've looked at it, everyone else has applied to them, you get on a rubbish course plan ahead with that kind of stuff look at the parameters in your life that's what i'm trying to say the parameters in your life that are going to define your performance all right we always used to say power attitude trim equals performance same thing your parameters that you have to align yourself by are going to tell you how your day is going to go all right does it make sense so you rock up to work looking like a bag of rubbish everyone else is going to address you slightly differently than if you rock up to work with polished shoes for example it shows that you're there you're there to contribute you're there you're stepping up all right. I'm using this as an example for all these kind of things, guys, but people really wanted me to make a podcast on this. I just thought this one might be quite useful to uh, talk about. But please, as I said, uh, hate on me if you want. I'm quite used to that. I really am. I couldn't care less. But what I'm saying is um, uh, if you have an opinion and it wants to be vitriolic and nasty, then as long as you are uninformed, I, I couldn't care less about you. If you've done some education, done some reading and you want to bring something to my attention, whack it in there. Massively happy about that always willing to learn. I'll try to give you my point of view from a flying perspective over the last 20 years and me speaking to a lawyer about this case and a police officer who I know obviously involved in the case as well. Um, and I'm just saying the why this particular verdict, uh, obviously I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but I'm just saying this verdict, this is why this is most likely happened. And I've obviously stressed in here as well the, uh, the issues with the parameters. So we've covered really We've talked about how important parameters are to pilots. We've talked about Andy Hill and his Shoreham uh, incident, not accidents, and you can you can ask me why I call things incidents and not accidents if you want to. Um, we've talked about why it's so divisive and why especially pilots have an opinion on this. A couple of guys I spoke to, and I'm a big fan of this as well. Uh, this is not necessary to this incident, but if you know you're not going to make that pull out, then you can always put that jet into the ground early. You know what I mean? It's a big call, but that should have been in your plan, right? You come through the vertical at a certain height, you think, not making this. Hands off the controls, you know what I mean? Let the jet poke in as opposed to landing on 11, car 11 people. Not saying that was what should have happened here in any sense because, of course, there was very, very slim chance that um, this, this guy, Andy Hill, could have got away with that uh, at the very end there by a very, very small margin um, by trying to fly it out. But a lot of pilots I've spoken to have said, if you realise you're that far out, get out. You know, literally, not get out of the jet. You're well outside seat limits. Just put that jet into the ground. And uh, it's a difficult one because those things need to be decided before you get into the aeroplane. That's why I'm talking about how important parameters are. Spoke about the cognitively impaired defense, and we just recapped on that. Guys, I hope that's all right. It's about an hour, I think. I'm going to put that together, get it out today. Podcast, YouTube. Probably put it on Facebook so you can comment on that. It's a long one. Uh, listen to it in the car. All right. Hopefully that will work out well for you. All right. Any questions, whack them down in the comments. I'll see what I can do for you. Tim Davis, Bicycle Prince.